2: From NPR, this is Invisibilia. I'm Kia Miyakonatis, And I'm Yoe Shaw. You may know Kia and me mainly as Invisibilia producers, mostly working behind the scenes. And now, we are stepping to the front as the new hosts. We just feel so excited and privileged to bring you more great stories, hopefully help you see the world in new ways. Beginning with a story from Kia that is quite a banger, if I may say so. It's about a social experiment with money and race that I think is going to make some of our listeners
3: uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. So buckle up. (laughs) Kia, take it away. All right, let's go. Story time.
1: Sometimes you meet people from the past that very much remind you of the present. Callie Guy House is one of those people. She is dead, but for me, her story is very much alive. I found out about Callie when I was researching the idea of reparations. It's probably a word you've been hearing more and more. It's definitely been on my mind. I wanted to learn the history of this idea. It had always seemed so fringe and impossible. Callie is one of the people I found. And what sticks with me the most about her story was that she was a Black woman doing a bold thing during a dangerous time. Oddly enough, was something fairly simple. A list and a demand. Around the early 1900s, Callie formed an organization of ex-slaves,
4: and she wrote a letter to the government. The association acted on behalf of 4.5 million slaves who were turned loose, ignorant, barefooted, and naked without a dollar in their pockets.
1: That's Mary Frances Berry, the former head of the U.S. Civil
4: Rights Commission. We, the ex-slaves, feel that if the government had a right to free us, she had a right to make some provision for us. As she did not make it soon after our emancipation, she ought to make it now. Kelly was trying to get payment
1: for the work these ex-slaves had done and never been paid for. Basically, reparations. Mary wrote a book about Callie called My Face is Black is True. She says Callie's story doesn't have a happy ending. The government feared the movement she created.
4: This woman has to be stopped at all costs. And they came after her. And so they charged her with trying to get pensions for slavery at a time when she should have known that the government was never going to give pensions to Black people for slavery.
1: (laughs) And that therefore that was fraud. Callie went to jail for a year, which basically ended her organization. But she started a thing, an idea that lots of people and organizations have carried forward over the years. Recently, I met some people who remind me of Callie. They also have an ambition, a list,
5: and a demand. If your family supports you and is rich and racist and greedy, you can say that you need cash for a car an airline ticket, rent, groceries, etc., and give that away. I got a lot of hate mail over that line.
1: Mm, it's my favorite. Last summer, I came across a link online. I clicked it, and it led me to a spreadsheet full of PayPal and Cash App and Venmo names. What I found was a social experiment in Vermont that, for me, raised this question. What happens when a group of people try to collect a debt? Jazz and Moira are
5: those people. My name's Jas Wheeler. I'm from Ohio. I'm fat, I'm trans. I'm from like a working poor uh, background.
1: Jazz is Black and Mexican-American.
5: Oh, can I? I swear a lot, and I've been wondering.
1: Yes, please, express yourself in however you feel. 30 old. years old. I
5: really have this perception of myself that I just shit talk all the time. <laughs> so, and
1: like, lives with their wife, Lucy, <laughs> in a rural town in northern Vermont, about 30 minutes from Burlington. And then there's Moira Smith.
6: I would describe myself as beautiful, um, brown. I'm five, three and a half. I have brown eyes. Moira is a student
1: at the University of Vermont and a self-proclaimed introvert.
6: And I'm a Leo. Mm. <laughs> That's basically how I describe myself.
1: Glad to know you're a Leo. Scorpio on the line. Before 2020, Jas and Moira didn't even know each other. Vermont is what brought them together.
2: Long before interstate highways, way before the World Wide Web, people were naturally drawn to Vermont.
1: What happened here almost seems obvious. After all, there's this one popular version of Vermont.
7: So many friendly, outdoorsy people.
1: They were Birkenstocks. They're progressive and liberal.
7: We say hi to our neighbors. Find
2: yourself. Lose yourself in Vermont.
1: They're also white. Like Saturday Night Live made a whole joke about it white.
0: No immigrants, no minorities. An agrarian community where everyone lives in harmony because every single person is white. Yes, sir. Yeah, I know that place. That sounds like Vermont.
1: (laughs) A full 94% of the state is white. What remains is little pockets of Latinx peoples, Asian folks, a really small number of indigenous people, and black people only about 9,000 Black people in a state of 624,000. Naturally, that ratio being what it is, Black folks in Vermont have seen some things. I spoke to a lot of Black people in Vermont, and they all told me very casually and calmly all types of racist and confusing and painful things that happened to them. I'm not going to trot out their trauma. Just trust me when I say it's the full bingo board of contemporary racism. But for Moira, who was only 19 when she
6: moved there, she wasn't ready. The first two weeks, I was just like crying every day, calling home. And I was like, I can't do this. Like, I can't stay here. I'm the only Black person in my dorm. I haven't even met like one Black person.
1: (laughs) Moira's from Virginia and where she grew up, everybody's Black, or at least it felt that way. She had white friends at church. But at the University of Vermont,
6: Moira had her first taste of being a lonely only. I remember biology and like I would sit down and then no one would sit next to me. And I was like, oh, like maybe I should sit in the front. Maybe I should sit in the middle. Like, no, like they're not going to sit next to you (laughs) unless they have to. They don't want to sit next to you. Moira described
1: being black in Vermont the way a lot of people did, like being invisible, but at the
6: same time, being highly visible. Like a flamingo or, what is that animal? Like a peacock, (laughs) you know? Everywhere you go, like, people stare at you. I'm with my friends walking down the street, like people in their cars are staring at us. Eventually, Moira found her people. When I met Jazz, like, they just felt safe. I consider them like a sibling.
5: I love Moira. Um, Her presence in my life feels really special.
6: Jazz moved to Vermont around 2014.
1: It was very different from Ohio, where the white folks at least smiled. In Vermont, the racism could be aggressive.
5: Leaving the grocery store around, like, 7.40 a.m., and this dude just, like, calls me a nigger from his truck. And the culture could be confusing. I remember going to this, um, like, barbecue restaurant, Mm -hmm. uh, and instead of collards on the menu, they had kale. Mm. And I just remember, like, feeling, like, so like, jarred by that? Maybe that feels like a silly thing to feel, like, jarred by
1: No, I understand. It's barbecue. (laughs) Um, (laughs) What is kale doing at a barbecue?
5: Yeah. I miss, um, just, I miss, like, you know, Black people.
1: Some people survive by assimilation. They swallow the racism, ignore the microaggressions, try their best to fit in. I've done it. It's an option that becomes increasingly accessible the closer you get to whiteness. Like how much money you have, how light your skin is, how you're educated. Bonus points if you know some of the words to sweet Caroline. Assimilation can eat you away until you become unrecognizable even to yourself. So if you don't want to become more like them, another option is to become more like yourself.
6: That's what Moira did. She chose herself. I have to find activism or like I won't be able to survive.
1: Activism is what led Moira to Alabama, a trip that changed her. In early 2020, Jass, Moira, and a handful of other folks flew down to Montgomery to visit the National Memorial for Peace and Justice. It felt like a pilgrimage.
5: Yeah, it's really hard to put into words. It felt like, um, like, like a really, like, sort of, like, spiritual experience, you know.
1: John and Louis Bonner. There are over four thousand lynchings commemorated in this open-air memorial. The people, the names, the dates, where they were killed. Mary Turner and her unborn child. Were in 1980 the names are listed on steel structures that hang from the ceiling
6: like caskets like I remember like walking like through it and I'm reading it and it just made me feel so sick because it was so brutal Fred Rochelle was 16 when he was burned alive by a white woman
5: when man you sit London, with the gravity
1: um,
5: of like what this country is and what it's built upon you know. And then you look at all the names and then you realize all the names that aren't there.
6: It's almost like you're at a funeral, but you don't know the people. Um but it just it feels like um like mourning. You're mourning something, mourning someone. Like that's what it feels like. Jesse Jackson. <laughs> <laughs> Before the trip, I had always been, like, ashamed that my ancestors were enslaved people. Yeah. Why do you think you felt shame before? You think, like, what did Black people do, like, to deserve to be enslaved and mass incarcerated? And it's like nothing, we didn't do anything. People decided to colonize us and bring us here. For Moira, an old idea began to bloom. Someone has to pay for like what has been done and someone has to pay for like what's still going on. And it should be white people because they're still benefiting from slavery. From lynchings and racial terror and segregation, it benefits them. When we come back, Moira
1: collects a debt.
0: Support for NPR and the following message come from the American Cancer Society. Dr. Alpa Patel leads a team that researches cancer risk factors, and she shares how her team makes an impact.
3: We always do what we like to think of as actionable science. So the work that we do makes its way to things like nutrition and physical activity guidelines for cancer.org, where millions of people come each year to learn about how they can better prevent cancer.
0: To learn more, go to cancer.org. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Mail checks, invoices, documents, and everything you need to keep your business running. Get rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS. And with the mobile app, you can take care of mailing on the go. Sign up at Stamps.com with code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.
4: NPR's
8: Life Kit wants to be that supportive friend when you just need an emotional check-in.
4: I know
3: how it can seem so overwhelming. You're not alone.
8: Our mental health episodes are full of smart tips to help you breathe a little easier.
2: Slow down. Think about who can I commit to being. You've got NPR's Life Kit.
8: Listen now.
1: Once Moira and Jas got back to Vermont from Alabama, everything fell apart. The pandemic hit. Classes were canceled. Moira lost her three jobs. The delicately balanced lives of the people around her began to tip towards poverty. Friends lost their jobs, too. One friend even had to move in with her. And then...
4: The young, unarmed Black man who was shot and killed while out jogging.
1: Ahmaud Arbery, and then the 26-year-old was shot and killed by Louisville Metro police officers. Brianna Taylor,
9: and then the man was face down on the street, handcuffed. He repeatedly told the officer he could not breathe. George Floyd.
4: No justice, no peace.
10: Protests
2: tonight in several cities, including Denver, Columbus, Washington, D.C., and
1: Chicago. didn't deserve to go the way that he went. There are tributes around the world.
0: You cannot continue to oppress, beat down, marginalize, redline, and kill a people and think we ain't gonna stand up and eventually fight back. This is an uprising. <laughs>
1: Burlington had their own protests downtown. She went,
6: but it didn't sit right with Moira. It was like so many white people there, but I just felt like they were there to be there. Like they weren't like really active, like they weren't really like passionate. They were just there because it was like the cool thing to do.
1: Moira wanted to do more. And the answer was right there. Someone has to pay.
6: We deserve reparations. It wouldn't be so hard if we had reparations.
1: Moira could imagine an alternate future where maybe her life would have been easier. Her great-grandfather would have gotten some land after emancipation, maybe built generational wealth. Things wouldn't have felt so
6: stressful now. The whole time I was thinking, like, if I had reparations, like, at least I would have, like, something to fall back on. It's 11 a.m.,
1: May 27th, 2020 two days after George Floyd has been killed. Moira sat on her couch, angry and tense. I
6: texted the people that I knew and I was like, is it okay? I'm going to like create a reparations list. Is it okay if I put your information on there? And they were like, what? They're like, do you think like it's going to work? And I'm like, I don't know. I'm like, we can just try and see. And they were like, okay, yeah. Jess and their wife,
1: Lucy, they were on that text message group. And they were totally down.
5: Fuck yeah, we have time for that, you know?
1: They were struggling just like everyone else. And in that moment, many people were grasping, looking for solutions, a direction, something. Especially white people, many of whom kept asking, what should we do?
5: Right, and I'm doing so much, what feels like so much labor, like emotional labor. Um, So like, let's let's get some money
1: they decided to create a list. They called it Wealth Redistribution for Black People in Vermont. Of course, there's a risk in making a public list of Black people in one of the widest states in America. Moira considered the possible consequences.
6: Hopefully, a white supremacist group doesn't get this list. But then it's like, people also need money for food, and they have to pay their bills. So that's what I was thinking. I was like, I have to, like, push past the fear and just think about, like, positive things that can happen.
1: Jass and Moira decided to make a Facebook post to spread the word. They created a small list of the Black people they knew with their cash apps and PayPal so people could send them money directly. Included with that post was a direct call to action, Lucy's Letter to White People.
10: If you are white and trying to understand how to be, in quotes, helpful— slash engaged, supportive, not completely co-signing white supremacy in all areas of your life. One of the easiest, i.e. the bare fucking minimum, ways to support Black life, Black joy, Black safety, Black community is to give your money to Black people. Jazz's wife Lucy wrote the letter. She's white. In it,
1: she's specific about what redistributing wealth means. Lucy knows people are about to be stingy, and she's clear in how they can overcome that.
10: Sending $50 is fine, but I mean redistribute some wealth. I usually know I'm hitting somewhere closer to it because it feels uncomfortable. It digs into or demolishes my financial comfort and stability. The impact is felt in my bank account and life. Sometimes I'm broke and the amount that does that to me is $50. Sometimes it's $500 or much beyond that. Find that number for yourself. This
1: lesson letter was asking white Vermonters to give money directly to Black Vermonters. Strangers. People they didn't know and wouldn't have to explain what they were going to do with the money. Maybe they didn't even need it. I mean, it wasn't a requirement. You just had to be Black and in Vermont. It felt like a long shot for sure. But they posted it anyway. And when that Facebook post went live...
5: Shit really got popping.
1: Black folks were signing up to join the list left and right.
5: It was wild.
1: Oh my gosh,
6: like now we have 50.
5: Like non-stop notifications.
4: This is not a joke. This isn't
0: real. This is really happening. It
9: was just like, it was like 200, 400, yeah. 500, Like somebody deposited like $500 in my cash app. And I'm like, what? people
1: started
5: telling their friends. No, it's not weird. It's like, I don't know how else to say Like, people, like, apparently, you know, want to give money. This person just texted me and told me they got $500, right? That felt so, like, gratifying in a time in which I felt pretty powerless and hopeless and depressed and, like, grieving.
1: Every day was payday in Vermont. I mean, Black folks were getting money. But the question of who was sending it... Can you hear me okay? I can. Do you want to get started?
11: Sure, let's give this a try.
1: I asked reporter Abby Wendell to try to find out. She's white, and my thought was, I know Black people tend to speak more honestly to other Black people, so I was hoping the same was true for white people.
3: My main question was, how much? Do you know how much you gave for, through through this particular wealth redistribution effort In total? Abby, you sound nervous. (laughs) I mean, Kia, it got real awkward. So I'm a little
9: uncomfortable. So I'm, so uh, how is just like, how is that going to be featured in in publicly?
7: (laughs) I'm sorry. Are you getting answers? Are you getting answers from other people? (laughs)
3: What's everyone else doing? Can I look at their homework? Yeah, exactly. They wanted, like, (laughs) social affirmation that, like, this was okay to do. Um, Another really interesting thing is, like, I have never in my life had interviews with such... Um, I think it has to do with... um, Long... Hmm. I'm talking really long. I'm just sorry, taking a moment to think if that's okay. Pauses. But I kept pressing because how much that question, you know, in a way, it's like the crux of Lucy's letter to white people. And the white Vermonters that I talked with, that's totally the part of Lucy's letter that struck them, too.
7: I remember this email specifically saying, you need to feel the pain of this donation this has to impact you directly.
3: Well, I was just like, well, fuck. So, this is Jamie Lent and his wife Allie. Jamie is a mechanical engineer, Allie's getting her PhD from the University of Vermont, and she read Lucy's letter after a colleague sent it to her and a couple of other people.
9: When I received their email request, not request, but like urge, call to action essentially for reparations, I was like, oh, I can give like 50 bucks, no big, like and then I read the line about if you can give 500, and you give 50, that sucks. This is a number that you need to feel.
3: Mm. So she sat there for a minute and just kind of like stewed in that feeling. And then she went over to Jamie and she read it out loud to him. And after she finished it, she just like grabbed his phone and went into his Venmo account.
9: Um, and I said, I'm going to do this. Here it is. Press the button.
3: Well, can you talk to me about amounts? Like what was the first Venmo? Yeah. Okay, so here we are again at that question of how much, and I'm just going to, like, let the tape play, and uh, you'll hear Jamie come in at the end of this.
9: I just, I think the reason I'm hesitant about talking about amounts, why are we hesitant about talking amounts? What's the, what happens if people find out how much? I'm, like, just thinking this
7: through. I don't know. I, I think
9: Americans it, hate talking about money.
7: Yeah, I hate talking about money, but, well, but here it. we are, anyways, and that's why you handle it. So um, we
9: gave away, we started Venmoing, and we were Venmoing, like, by we, I mean I, uh, $1,000 to like multiple different random people. So that was weird. Like, here you go, here's $1,000.
3: Ellie did that, dropped like $1,000 each into the accounts of, I think, four people on the wealth redistribution list. Wow! But then, like, Jamie actually starts wondering several thousand dollars. Do I even feel that? Mm. Does that rise to the level of what Lucy's letter is asking? And so they they Mm. kind of start this tug-of-war with each other where, um, like, Allie and Jamie... They go on walks every morning together Mm. Um, and they have conversations on these walks. And at this time they start debating this question, how
7: much? Mm. Okay. So if $1,000 doesn't impact us, does $2,000, does $20,000, does $200,000? And, you know, as you do these numbers, they all feel uncomfortable.
9: We were walking by Redstone Lofts. i like, remember I had coffee in my hand. You're like, why couldn't we give? 20,000, 30,000. I'm like, cuz.
7: (laughs) (laughs) We kept challenging each other could it be more? Could we get rid of more?
3: Jamie and Allie ultimately decided to give 10% of their life savings away, but to a nonprofit for racial justice, not to the list. Now, Jamie and Allie have money a pretty significant amount of disposable income. But I talked with several people who participated who don't. One person I talked to who works part-time contract jobs told me they were redistributing so much that in the future, they'd have trouble paying their own bills, which seems extreme. But as I talked with more and more people, I noticed this trend in how many of them were thinking about money. They had stopped thinking of it as their own and started thinking of it as a shared resource. So if they had more than they needed, they should redistribute it more equally.
1: These Vermonters were really into what Lucy's letter was saying. But for Moira, it's not that deep. What did you think when you read Lucy's letter?
6: I was like, that's great. Yay. (laughs) (laughs) Such a dry response. I'm serious. I feel like sometimes people get lost. They might get lost in Lucy's letter.
1: Moira went on to explain that, though the letter is useful, it's not the heart of what's happening here. It's just a device. A match, but not the fire. This isn't to say it wasn't effective. It did what it was supposed to do. It got people to act. And... As Jess points out, getting people to act, that required a fair amount of coaching.
5: It was interesting here to read, like, the words that Lucy knew that she had to write for other white people about discomfort. Actually, like, reading this as, like, coaching other white people on how to give money and how to give generously, you know, to, specifically to Black people. You know, because that's the last group of people that white people want to give money to generously, you know? Give it to, like, the animal rescue, you know, give it to the zoo, the whatever, like the women's club in town, whatever, but give it to their church, but uh, to give generously to black people that they do not know in their community, Um is not something that they can intuitively do.
1: For example, Jazz kept hearing from a lot of young white people.
5: My family is wealthy, and I want to get their money to some of the people on this list, but I don't know how to because they're never going to give to, like, an individual, right?
1: These were the white parents that needed receipts, proof of what was going to be done with the money with a side dish of tax deduction. So... Jass wrote out additional directions for using the list with an unexpected solution.
5: If your family supports you and is rich and racist and greedy, you can say that you need cash for a car, an airline ticket, rent, groceries, etc., and give that away.
1: This line gets me every time because it's absurd and hilarious, but I can also sense the frustration. I took it as a joke, but Jess was serious in
5: a way wanting to challenge people to, like, just figure out ways to just get the money from their parents and, like, give it away. Because it does feel possible. um, To me, at least.
1: Of course, a lot of people didn't get it. Even Black folks, many of whom replied to Jess with their criticism.
5: You're encouraging people lying to their family. Um, You're telling people to steal. Plus the classic. We should all get jobs. Jess wrote them back. If you feel like you are not in a place of like wanting to receive money um, from white people who are seeking to like uh, redistribute their unearned wealth, uh, then you don't have to be right, um, and also don't shit on people who are who are um, because at the end of the day, it's our it's our money. <laughs> we deserve this money.
1: I get what Jass meant, but I know that line seems provocative. It did provoke a lot of people. And while some wrote emails, one person responded a bit differently. A white dude from Rhode Island, who sent requests for money to different Black people on the list instead of payments. One person was tricked and lost $500. Ultimately, Jass and Lucy were able to convince the scammer to give the money back. That was just one of the problems with the list. The main problem was, surprise, surprise, inequality. Remember, white people were supposed to pay money randomly to people on the list. But instead, they often gave to the names they knew, like prominent organizers or people who spoke at the protests. Consequently, a lot of Black folks on the list ended up sharing the money they got with other people who didn't get any. In spite of all this, The list grew bigger than anything Moira and Jazz had imagined. When we come back, is this guilt money? Or charity? Or something else? Black folks in Vermont have questions.
0: This message comes from Capital One, offering commercial solutions you can bank on. This message comes from NPR sponsor Progressive, and it's name your price tool. Say how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show coverage options within your budget. Visit Progressive.com Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.
2: How do we reinvent ourselves? And what's the secret to living longer? I'm Anoush Zamarodi. Each week on NPR's TED Radio Hour, we go on a journey with TED speakers to seek a deeper understanding of the world and to figure out new ways to think and create. Listen now.
1: There are now more than 300 Black people on the wealth redistribution list. Many of them are under 40, a lot of them queer or college students, some immigrants. And the group of people who gathered to help Jason Moore Moira manage it, they estimate that around $65,000 have been redistributed. It might even be more. There's no real way of knowing since the money went directly to individuals. For the Black people who did receive cash, it wasn't just as simple as name on list, money in account. Getting money from strangers, let alone white people in a time of deep racial tension, it can leave you with a lot of questions.
8: I'm going to assume that I'm not the only person that had some of those thoughts come up of, like, what will people think?
1: That's Wayne Miller. He's in his early 30s and lives in the Upper Valley region of Vermont with his partner and two kids. The list came into his life when he had just lost his job. But still, he had
8: his reservations. People will lose respect for me or then you could bring gender dynamics in of like oh i guess i'm not you know enough of a man that i'm just taking care of
1: my family. Wayne is just one of a couple dozen black vermonters who i met from the list. A lot of people were down to talk but some were hesitant. I think part of it had to do with the list feeling like charity even though it's not. But for Elena Littlebug, that question of this feeling like charity, she's been there before.
8: I've, like, looked people directly in the eye and asked them for money, literally just asking for money.
1: Elena shares a home with her kid and her partner in Montpelier. But years ago, when she had first come out as trans and was living in Los
8: Angeles, she was homeless. I think that when you're in that kind of position, your dignity isn't a question. Your dignity uh, is... Only what you make of it and what you can keep of it and what you can kind of like go through while hanging on to it.
1: So she had no problem putting her name on the list, though her expectations of what would happen were low.
8: Nobody is really going to give anything like I might get like 50 bucks or something like that.
1: Finally, meet Julian Hackney. Morning. Hi, how are you? Julian's pretty well known in some corners of Vermont. He's in a punk band with his brothers. It's called Rough Francis. He lives in Burlington with his family. And when he heard about the list,
7: I was actually taken aback by my
5: own reaction to it because I was like, I had my own like hang ups about it and was like, whoa, like, I don't want to like take money from people.
1: But that resistance to the idea nudged Julian to think a bit more deeply about what the list was trying to do. He considered the wealth gap, why white people as a group have more money and resources than Black people.
11: I guess I, I
5: thought that if we're going to get to a place where it's a normal conversation that we're having and it's a continuing you know, progression, like I
11: wanted to be a part of it.
1: He put his name on the list. And got about four hundred dollars in total. He saved most of it.
11: I still, I
2: still struggle with
8: it,
5: but it's something that I'm. I feel it breaking down within myself,
7: and it actually feels more like reparations than I, than I guess I expected it to.
8: I, I felt more secure.
1: Elena was surprised. Turns out people gave more money than she expected.
8: I'd, like, open up my Cash App or or Venmo or something like that and just be like, oh, my God, I I don't have to worry about, like, utilities this month. Uh, just, like, I was just more liquid.
1: She got nearly $1,000. And the best part? She didn't have to perform the dance of receiving charity.
8: It wasn't one of those things where it's like, I, I felt like I had to be, like, groveling. I am... Genuinely grateful, but at the same time, like uh, you know, there was no pomp and circumstance to it, at the expense of your dignity.
1: But Wayne, the guy who was worried about gender stereotypes, he got nearly ten thousand dollars from being on the list. Now that's pretty rare. Most people I talked to got around two to four hundred dollars. But Wayne's well-known in the community and ended up using the bulk of the money he got to start a nonprofit to mentor Black youth.
8: In some ways, reminds me of um, the ending to It's a Wonderful Life when they all just show up with the money.
1: You know, the Christmas movie where the guardian angel shows George Bailey what his town would look like without his good deeds. Just like George, Wayne was in a rough place but his community showed
8: up for him. And they could have just let him go to jail, right? (laughs) Like, they could have just, like, let them haul him away, but everybody scraped whatever they had together, and they, you know, they barely had money to give themselves, but they gave it. Things you do, do make a difference.
1: I know that last bit from Wayne will make you think that what happened in Vermont was some sort of sweet community story. And maybe it is, but it's hard to understand exactly what happened in this experiment. Some people I shared it with called it charity, though it wasn't need-based, so that doesn't fit. Sometimes I think about it like mutual aid, but then I sort of have to shake myself awake like it's a debt, it's not aid. It can be confusing. For what it's worth, Jass and Moira know that what they're doing is not reparations. They call it wealth redistribution. But the letter calls out reparations as something that should and needs to happen. What they're doing, it kind of stands in the very large gap created in the absence of reparations. And I wanted to ask folks who have thought longer about this idea if what happened in Vermont meant anything to the cause.
4: Yeah, I, I won't... It sidetracked. There are lots of piecemeal programs or initiatives out there, and there they are.
1: That's Richard America, an economist who has spent the past 50 years working on the economic case for reparations.
4: Or restitution, as I prefer.
1: He's published a lot of work on the topic.
4: Slavery and segregation and discrimination were mechanisms for Let's put it crudely stealing money. Hmm. Uh, racism is primarily about money. It's got lots of other dimensions, but fundamentally, uh, slavery was a business operation.
11: Mm-hmm.
4: And segregation and just about every form of discrimination, likewise, takes money by force, by fraud, by many kinds of manipulation, and enriches whites as a class at the expense of Blacks as a class.
1: To Richard, a national problem deserves a national solution, and his solution is pretty obvious. Tax the rich and redistribute that income back to Black people. And yes, he's aware. It sounds harsh.
4: It is a zero-sum game. We're not sugarcoating that or or tap dancing around that yes we want the top 30 percent of the income distribution to be poorer than they would have been Mm. because they should not have had what they have in the first place
1: now richard's idea is just one of many i've heard others that wouldn't involve taxes at all the money could come from the federal reserve but he does not support direct payments No personal checks or direct deposits in Richard America's plan. He prefers what he calls life-changing grants to do things like buy a house or go to college.
11: Ultimately, what good is startup money to buy a house when the property values are still racialized? In other words, the kind of institutional racisms that existed before, that's not going to change with a payment.
1: Reparations is an idea that's bigger than just numbers, math, or money. Robin D.G. Kelly, he gets that. He's a history professor at UCLA who studied lots of different Black liberation movements. And to Robin, what was happening in Vermont, it was
11: kind of funny. To me, it sounds like performance art. <laughs> you know? I would call it in some ways a kind of um, an interesting uh, provocation. Uh, in the name of reparations. But also, it wasn't enough. Gives people a laugh, and it puts some money in some Black people's pockets, which is good. I'm not against that at all. Um, But but if we stop there, then what will happen is that once every white person pays something, they're going to say, shut up, you can't talk anymore. Reparations should not be about guilt. It should be about justice. And that's mm. different. Justice is not guilt.
1: Guilt can motivate, but it doesn't repair. Justice does that. What Robin wants is something bigger.
11: I've always thought about reparations in terms of of movement, in terms of mm. building movements to create a new kind of society. A new kind of society.
1: It, it
11: feels like such a big vision, you know? Yeah, but what, what good is vision without a big one?
1: For centuries, Black folks have dreamed up ways to repair for the harms of slavery. Ideas like forming a nation-state in the South or returning to the continent. And maybe you can call these things failed attempts, but maybe they're also test cases, case studies, the building blocks towards something.
4: A hundred years from now, this will not be controversial. People say, "Well, of course, we, we will, we will correct uh, historic injustices this way." A hundred years. Yeah, I mean, it'll it'll be this will be standard. I'm not saying that it'll take that long to get the payments. The point I'm saying that this will have become normalized.
1: Richard America is optimistic. And if you look around, there are all sorts of efforts in the name of reparations happening right now. Evanston, Illinois, is giving money to Black homeowners to make up for historic redlining. Georgetown University has a program for the descendants of the slaves it once sold. Even in Vermont, the city of Burlington is researching what reparations might look like. And so many different people, through online groups and lists, are making reparations happen in their own communities, in their own ways. But what happened in Vermont feels different to me because of its forceful demand. Pay Black people directly. No questions asked. It doesn't matter if they need the money or what they're going to do with it. That said, I couldn't help myself from asking them the question. What difference has the money made?
6: I was able to buy a car, not in cash, but I had a down payment um, to purchase a car, which I would not have had if I didn't receive reparations from white people.
5: What did I buy? I bought some, like, blinds for our house because we didn't have any curtains, you know. You know, I bought some new socks. I bought some new underwear. Um, was able to do, like, a big Costco order. Like, I like, I got shit that I needed.
1: Perhaps not surprisingly, nearly a year after they started the effort, the giving to the wealth redistribution list for Black people in Vermont has slowed to a trickle.
5: Good times can't necessarily last if you're just like waiting on white people to do the right thing.
1: The list is no longer active, so you won't find it online. But nationally, it appears the question of reparations is more alive than ever. For the first time in its history, HR40, the congressional bill to form a commission to study reparations, will be going to the House floor for vote. Now, It's a long road from a vote to actual reparations, but when I think about all of this, to me, the work started with Callie Guy House. I mean, after Callie came a woman named Queen Mother Moore, and she helped carry the torch for reparations through the 50s and 60s. By the 80s, there was a guy they called Reparations Ray, which I love. That's really what they called him. He was in Detroit. And he had a plan called SLAP, Slave Labor Annual Pay. And he pestered his congressman, John Conyers, until finally, in 1989, Congressman Conyers drew up what would become H.R. 40. Maintaining the fires of an idea is a feat in and of itself. And grassroots efforts, like Vermont, are stoking those fires— While the government continues to move at its own pace, it took over 100 years to get from Callie's list to Moira and Jass's list, and it feels like there's a little bit of progress made. Who knows what might happen in another 100 years?
5: Not to just like die on this hill, but just give your money away to black people. If you're not black, give your money away to black people every week. And if you're thinking about it and if it makes you feel uncomfortable um, or if it makes you feel angry, like I promise that the balm to that feeling is to give your money away.
2: Stick around after the break for a preview of next week's episode. This message comes from NPR sponsor Mint Mobile.
0: Noom understands that not everyone is starting from the same place and takes that into account. With their first-ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, you can find a 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold.
2: Next week on NPR's Invisibilia. Stockton, California is no stranger to a familiar problem – Conspiracy theories.
8: I would hear 9-11 conspiracy stuff, tracers in the sky, chemtrails.
2: But a few years ago, a website popped up and conspiracy theories started ramping way up, taking on a decidedly more local flavor. The
0: mayor's corrupt. The mayor is stealing money. He doesn't really live in
8: talking. What really happened to the money?
2: it's like clockwork out of the Trump ban in playbook. It's being
4: funded by conservative movement underneath the table. And they're getting away with
2: it. On the first episode of a new series, what happens when the local news outlet isn't fact-checking conspiracy theories, maybe encouraging them?
1: All right, that's my story for today. If you're still feeling a little uncomfortable, kudos on you for sticking with it. We have a meditative prize for you. Welcome to our Credits for us where we say thank you to everybody who helped us make this story, starting first with the people responsible for us being here. This show would not exist without the love and support of Elise Spiegel, Lulu Miller, Anna Rosen, and Anne Goodenkoff. Thank you all for creating this space, building it over the years, teaching us, and helping it grow. Pew, This is me doing the theme music. Invisibilia is produced by Andrew Mambo, Kim Yakunatis, Yoe Shaw, and Abby Wendell. Our senior editor for this season is Deborah George. Nicole Beemsterboer is our supervising senior producer. Our manager is Liana Simstrom. We had help on this episode from Derek Arthur, Sophia Charles, David Goodhurst, Carolyn McCusker, Justine Yan, and Liza Yeager. Additional editorial support came from CC Pascal. Fact checking by Natalie Mead and Greta Pittenger. This episode was mastered by our technical director, Andy Huther. Special thanks to Ramti Narablui, Julie Kane, Gene Denby, Emmanuel Dochi, Jerry Holmes, Chioki Ianson, Lane Kaplan-Levinson, Devin Mays, Shereen Marisol-Miraji, Micah Ratner, Luis Treas, and Walter Ray Watson. Additional thanks to Mitra Arthur, Hamza Butler, Miko Butte, Nikki Birch, and Natasha Desjardins, who lent their voices to this story. There are Black people in Vermont, and I spoke to a lot of them. There are too many to name, but if you're listening, thank you for taking the time to share your stories with me. And a big shout-out to Candace Taylor, Keona Bias-Heath, and Megan Cronkite. Our big bosses are Neil Carruth and Steve Nelson. Our Senior Vice President of Programming is Anya Grunman. Music for this episode provided by Connor Lafitte, William Cashin, Arts the Beat Doctor, Silixis, Connor Moore, Firefly, and Physical Fitness. Theme music and more original tunes by Infinity Knives. To see an original illustration for this episode by Chair Wang, visit npr.org slash invisibilia. Finally, a special thank you to Brendan Barnes, our listener from Boiling Springs, Pennsylvania, who sent us the sound you're listening to right now.
0: This is the forest in Mount Laguna, California.
1: We'd love to hear more from you all, so if you have a sound you'd like to send us, send it on over to invisibiliamail at npr.org.
0: This message comes from NPR sponsor, the Capital One Venture X Card. Earn unlimited 2X miles on everything you buy. Plus, get access to a $300 annual credit for bookings through Capital One Travel. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. Details at CapitalOne.com.
2: Support for NPR and the following message come from IXL Learning. IXL Learning uses advanced algorithms to give the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. Get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com NPR. Last year, over 20,000 people joined the Body Electric study to change their sedentary, screen-filled lives. And guess what? We saw amazing effects. Now you can try NPR's Body Electric Challenge yourself. Listen to updated and new episodes wherever you get your podcasts.